Okay, today we're going to finish up chapter 27 of Matthew. <clears throat> we may even finish up Matthew next time I teach, and then after that we'll probably do a review, and, and that'll be it. So probably about three or four more times. Okay, today we're going to read Matthew 27, 57 through 66. Before we do that, let's do a little review. Uh, what do you remember from last week that stood out to you? What was the other significant thing about that one-piece clothing? Who else wore those kind of clothing? The high priest. Interesting thing about it is that no one would have known that until unless they saw him as undergarment like the disciples or or until that time. You know? And of course, the, the soldiers recognized how you know expensive the piece of clothing that is, how unique it is. They didn't want to rip it. They wanted to cast lots for it. What else you remember from last week? Uh, going along with that, Jesus would have been naked on the cross. Mm-hmm. Yep. And something I, I noticed also later, I, I'm not sure if you brought it up, uh, skipping all the way down to where the soldiers in verse 54, so when the centurion, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared God greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Mm-hmm. Usually, um, I've heard it taught or depicted in movies and stuff, but there was just one centurion there, but it was the centurion and they that were with him, saying that he was the Son of God. So it's the whole group of soldiers there saying that, not just the individual centurion. Right, yeah, I mentioned that last week. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, what else? Remember we talked about the atonement a little bit, the significance of uh, my God, my God, why are you forsaken me? What psalm is that from? Psalm 22. Okay. Which is a messianic psalm. Does it mean that uh, Jesus and God the Father were separated in relationship to each other? <laughs> what that means? Does it mean that Jesus became a sinner on the cross? Or sinful on the cross? Okay. Anything else from last week that you remember? I stuck out to you. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I'm and I don't know if what it does in your Bible. My Bible doesn't have quotation marks around; it just has it standing out by itself yeah, in all caps. Uh, you have to look at the front of your Bible to see what the translators mean by that, but um, I don't think they mean quotation by it. But uh, yes, and the fullest expression. Of it, I think, is found in uh, in John, John nineteen nineteen. Mm-hmm. I say, well, if God really exists and strike me down dead, God really exists. Mm-hmm. But just because he doesn't do it doesn't mean he's not God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, if he if he were to just bow down and do everything that we told him to do, then, then he wouldn't be God. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, just uh, something that really stuck out to me. That's, that's it doesn't mean that he couldn't do those things. He could do those things. He was. He not to right. in a lot of cases. And right. Sometimes he, he might choose to do so. Right. Right. Is something okay? Um, yes. Um, Sarah, why you said last week it was obviously vinegar? Mm-hmm. Very good. Now, what, what did they try to give him at first with the sour wine? Sour wine and... Um, um, gall. Yeah, very good. And the gall was, was meant to uh, kind of dull your senses <laughs> and not make you feel the pain. And Jesus wouldn't take that. But he would take the sour wine later on. When he said, I thirst, he would take it, which fulfilled prophecy. Both those cases fulfilled prophecy. 
Now, what what hour was uh, was Jesus crucified? Do you remember that? Third hour. That's right. And what hour was it that he finally died? Would have been the ninth hour, right? So he's on the cross for about six hours, which is a very short period of time for someone to be on the cross. Usually, they'd be on there for at least a day or days before they died. And even when the process was speeded up by the breaking of the legs, we'll look at it a little bit today. Uh, they still would have lasted a lot longer than that. Okay, anything else you remember from last week that sticks out to you? What about what about the veil being torn? What was significant about that? Yeah. Could human beings do that? Yeah, and the fact that it was t- torn from top to bottom too right. would have uh, shown them something. Whoever was there, ministering at that point in time, offering the sacrifices, the daily sacrifices. Yeah, and the hermeneutic principle we have to learn from this is that where the Bible is silent, we're going to be silent. Okay? The Bible doesn't explicitly say something. You can't say, well, the Bible says this and make a whole big doctrine and call someone a heretic if they don't believe it. Right? That'd be a little ridiculous, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, um, you know, those kind of things, I think the things I suppose about their good suppositions, you know, considering what's all involved here, but even I can't be dogmatic about that. I can maybe eliminate some things by what the scriptures say about that situation, but I don't think I can say dogmatically exactly who it was and why they rose and all those kind of things. But the scripture doesn't say. Okay, so let's start in verse 57 and go through verse uh, 66. Now when evening had come, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in the new tomb, in his new tomb, which he had honed out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, the other Mary, sitting opposite the tomb. And the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, remember while he was still alive, how the deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to him, them, you have, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Okay, so... <clears throat> We see here this a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Now, this is the first we hear of Joseph, but we get quite a few details, not necessarily from Matthew, so to speak, but from the rest of the disciples. Um, let's go to um, Mark 15 and verse 43. Let's see what Mark had to say about him, some extra details that Mark gave. Mark 15 and verse 43. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So we see in, um, in verse, in Matthew 27 verse 57 that he was called a rich man and a disciple of Jesus. But Mark now says that he was a prominent member of the council. So the council was a Sanhedrin, which is the very group that just condemned Jesus. Okay, so he was a part of that group. The question becomes: Did he was he a part of the group that condemned Jesus? Was he given consent to that uh, with the rest of the council? We'll find out here in a minute. But he was a prominent council member. He was waiting for the kingdom of God, and that itself, being a prominent councilman or being a rich man. does take courage to come to Pilate and say, can I have the body of Jesus? I mean, think about it for a second. Put yourself in his shoes. This guy is a part of the council that just condemned Jesus. He's giving Pilate this hard time about Jesus and about how he deserves to die when Pilate didn't want to put him to death. 
And now one of the members of this council is coming and asking for the body of Jesus. So it takes courage just to come to Pilate for that reason. Not only that, it takes courage because surely, once he did get the body of Jesus, the Jewish people would have found out, the very ones who were just screaming at, crucify him, crucify him. His very friends, his Sanhedrin fellow men, would have heard about it, would have seen it. So he's risking a lot of things here. Uh, he's risking probably money. He's a rich man. And the only way to make money that I'm aware of is for people to buy your goods or whatever it is you're selling. And the multitude of people in Jerusalem just did what to him? They, they condemned Jesus. And now he's coming and getting the body of Jesus, aligning himself with Jesus, wanting to bury the body of Jesus and treat it properly. This blasphemer who they just crucified, at least that was the accusation against him. Um, and so he's, he's risking losing money, a rich man losing money. Uh, he's risking his reputation. You know, he, he's a prominent member of the council. And obviously, at the least, the majority of this council, or at least the most powerful ones in the council, just condemned Jesus to death. So he's risking his reputation and his social status. I seriously doubt that after this happened, that he continued to be a prominent member of the council, let alone a member of the council, period. He probably, from there on out, was ostracized at the best. Okay, you know, we don't know... I don't know of any other scripture that talk about Joseph and what happened to him after this, but I can imagine some of the things that would have happened to him. Now he would have been ostracized. Okay, so we see from Mark some more details there. Uh, let's look at uh, Luke 23. <clears throat> so he was a disciple of Jesus. He was a prominent member of the council. He was a rich man. He was waiting for the kingdom of God, which in itself is a pretty uh, extraordinary thing because... The fact that he wasn't thinking that kingdom of God was going to come right then, when Jesus was there, like a lot of them were deceived into thinking, even some of the disciples thought this, he was still waiting for the kingdom of God, which means he, he somehow understood what Jesus was saying and understood the Old Testament scriptures concerning Jesus. He was still waiting for the kingdom of God. Uh, Luke 23 and verse 50, it says, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, so it repeats that again. Same thing Mark said. It doesn't say prominent this time, but it says a council member. A good and just man. And this is a man who's called good and just by the Holy Spirit through Luke the doctor. Before the man had the Holy Spirit, he was called a good and just man. Well, I thought we couldn't be just or righteous. That's what the word means there. It means righteous. I thought we couldn't be good. So obviously when Jesus was talking to the young ruler, he said there's only one person that's good, and that's God alone. He's using two different definitions of good, is he not? Because surely the Holy Spirit's not going to contradict himself. So good here means that he currently, it doesn't mean he's never sinned, like God has never sinned, which is what good means in the, in the context of what Jesus said to the young rich ruler. Here it obviously means he's good, that he's living holy right now. He's living righteous right now. Not that he's always lived holy or always lived righteous, never sinned, but he's good and just in that sense. And the Bible is calling him this. Before the Holy Spirit is given to believers. Yes. And verse 51, we get some insight into what happened with Jesus being condemned. It says he had not consented to their decision indeed to condemn Jesus. So obviously we know that a 100% majority was not needed by the council to condemn somebody. So I don't know what Joseph did. Was he in there and was disagreeable? Did he keep his mouth shut? And was he quiet about what happened? Did he, you know, remember they did it in the middle of the night. Maybe he didn't show up, maybe he showed up late. Maybe he showed up, saw what they were doing, were being unjust and unfair just and how they were in to molt about it, and he said, you know what, I'm not even going to bother, and walked away. But he didn't consent to it. Uh, so we know he didn't consent. And we know that, that Nicodemus, who we'll talk about here in a second, who was a member of the Pharisees, who also would have been there, he didn't consent to it either. We know that. It says once again at the end of verse 51 that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He's also from Arimathea, a city of the Jews. We don't know exactly where that is. Um, people have supposed it's close to Jerusalem, which is possible, but we don't know exactly where it is. And um, let's see, let's go to, I don't think John gives anything extra here. Let's go to John 19. It does give us one extra detail, I'm sorry. In John 19.38... It says, after this, referring to Jesus dying, 
Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. So he was the disciple secretly for fear of the Jews. Uh, and I'm sure that wasn't something he was uh, pleased or proud about later on. Um, hopefully that can't be written about any of us. That we're secretly a disciple of Jesus because of the fear of man. It should be an out in the open thing. People should know uh, that we are a disciple of Jesus. So this 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 man Joseph was a pretty extraordinary man. He was a good man, a just man, uh, a prominent council member, a rich man. And let's talk about that idea that he's a rich man for a second here. Let's go to Isaiah fifty three nine and see how that's a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah fifty three has lots of prophecies that are fulfilled in it. And we haven't talked about this one yet that I, I remember. Uh, verse 9, <clears throat> they made his, talking about Jesus, made his grave with the wicked. So he died along, amongst wicked people, uh, which is again repeated in verse 12, halfway through verse 12, where it says he was numbered with the transgressors. Okay, But going back to verse 9, the second part of it here, but with the rich at his death. Which really doesn't make much sense because when, when a criminal dies, they normally don't get buried with the rich people. Okay? They more, normally get buried with the criminals. That's what they were. They were a criminal. But the fact that Jesus was buried, he was, he died alongside criminals and was buried with rich people is a pretty extraordinary thing and it fulfilled prophecy. And you see, Joseph of Arimathea, it's not as if God is forcing Joseph to do this. I mean, that's what someone's going to have to say. If you're if you're a Calvinist or you're a or open theist, you're going to have to say that somehow God forced Joseph, forced some kind of rich man to come and do this. Uh, but, of course, I believe this is simply God's foreknowledge of what Joseph was going to decide to do. And so he was a rich man. And so not only does that fulfill prophecy, but the, the manner in which he came fulfilled prophecy. Uh, so we've talked about, I, I reminded you of the, the time frame here. Brother Vaughn reminded us of 3 p.m. our time, which would have been the ninth hour for the Jewish people. And we do know the Jewish people, their new day starts, it flips over, not at midnight, like it does for us, at midnight, but it flips over at 6 p.m. or when the sun goes down. And in March, April, which is when the Passover would have been, the sun goes down. I checked it myself, the sun goes down right around 6 p.m., what do you know? Okay, so between the time that Jesus died, 3 p.m., or the ninth hour, Joseph of Arimathea would have had three hours to bury Jesus because <clears throat> they wanted him buried before the Passover. <clears throat> we'll get more into that here in a minute, but when it says evening in verse 57, I don't want you to read into that after 6 p.m. or after, because we, we think evening in our perspective, we think evening is like, you know, 5 p.m., 6 p.m., right around dinner time. But evening for them uh, was the latter part of the day, just like it is for us, but uh, their day starts over at around 6 p.m., okay? And so we see these details about Joseph and he how he's fulfilling prophecy about being a rich man. And uh, and one of the reasons why, uh, besides not burying people in the Passover, that he had to be buried before 6 p.m. was because Friday, the day he was buried, had to count, as one of the days. Okay? Now, the Bible says that Jesus is in the tomb for three days. Okay? Now, from our perspective, as American Christians, we think three 24-hour periods. Okay? 72 hours. got to be 72 hours in the grave. That's what we think when we say that. Uh, but I'll, I'll just give you one example from our perspective, from in our culture, of why that doesn't make sense. And then I'll get to the Jewish culture here in a second here. But we, we say if someone stays in a hotel for three days and two nights, do we mean they stayed in the hotel for exactly 72 hours? No, we mean that they checked in probably around 3 o'clock the first day. They were there for that day, there for the whole second day, and the third day they checked out by probably noon. So they may, may have reached possibly, probably not even 48 hours worth of days in the same place or I'm sorry, 12 hours in a day, I guess, and 12 hours at night. So they wouldn't even have reached 24 hours in a whole day. 
you know, 24 hours worth of day when the sun is up in the hotel, but we call it three days and two nights. Now, in the Jewish perspective, any part of a day, even just an hour, counts as that day, okay? So when Jesus was buried, when he was buried before 6 p.m. on Friday, Friday counts, okay? Then Saturday counts, and grave the whole day on Saturday, then Sunday, he rose on that day, and so that part of the day counts as well. So that's three days, okay? Some people will have you believe that he, because of this 72-hour thing, that he was actually buried on Thursday, or he was buried even on Wednesday, uh, but I simply, they're simply mistaken when it comes to that. It's not what it means, and we'll get to that more of that here in a, in a minute. But I wanted to show you how J- Joseph coming at the time that he came does matter. Not only that matters, um, but the where the tomb was matters as well because it was nearby uh, where the where Jesus died, and that is found in. Let's see here. Find it in my notes real quick here. I think it's in John's Gospel. Yeah. I think it's in John's Gospel that says that uh, it was nearby where he died. It was a garden nearby. Uh, Yeah, John 19 and verse 41. Uh, Now in the place where he was crucified, talking about Jesus, there was a garden, and the garden a new tomb which no one had yet been laid. So... Uh, you have that three-hour window there, and remember, he had to go talk to Pilate first after Jesus had died at the ninth hour. So, go to go talk to Pilate, got to come back, got to get all the supplies they had gotten. And Nicodemus came along later on. We see in John here in a second. So they had very very short period of time to get all this accomplished and get the stone rolled in front of it. You know, uh, so it could be done before the Sabbath, and so that day could count as one of the days. And you see how God is using Joseph and his free will, and Jesus declared these things back in Matthew 12. He's talking about Jonah being the hard earth for three days. He says, I will be, I'll be in the tomb for three days. He's declaring that. Now, is that a wishy-washy kind of thing? I might be in the tomb for three days, maybe two days. No, it was a very emphatic thing. I will be there for three days. And see all the things that have to happen in order for that to come about the way it's supposed to come about? See how much free will is involved here? And how God has to somehow know exactly what Joseph's going to do and Nicodemus is going to do and what Pilate's going to do to release the body to them. And all these things have to happen in order for Jesus to be in the tomb for three days and to rise again on the first day of the week. Okay. Uh, So this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And let's go to Mark 15 again just for a second here to just see some added details here from there and brother jesse mentioned this uh when he taught about a month ago or so and um we we read verse 43 he took courage to ask Pilate, and Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoning the centurion he asked him if he had been dead for some time when he found out from the centurion he granted the body to joseph okay so he he found out that he had already been dead for some time. Now, this was after, this situation happened after the fair, uh, the religious leaders came uh, to Pilate and asked him to speed along the death process uh, by breaking the bones of those who were on the cross. And so we see that in uh, John 19, verse 31. Says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Now, the legs being broken would do several things. We talked about this before, how it would uh, break down their support system so they wouldn't be able to breathe. They'd be in the exhale position, wouldn't be able to push up on their legs to be able to, to inhale some oxygen. But not only that, I mean, think about someone taking a hammer or a sledgehammer, which probably what it would take, to your leg and just smashing it with one swift hit. That would be painful. Uh, it would cause shock to your body. And so that itself would it would cause a loss of blood, too. I'm sure that the bone would probably protrude out of the body. Uh, it would cause, cause a loss of blood. So even that would speed along. But even though those things had been done, we see... Um, 
that Pilate allowed it to happen. Uh, in verse uh, 32, Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And so they, Pilate gave permission to do this, and uh, one of the soldiers pierced his side. So this is all happening before uh, Joseph came to to, to Pilate, otherwise he wouldn't have known yet that, they, that Jesus was dead. So they pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out, and he was seen. Uh, and he who has seen has testified, and this testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth, that, so that you may believe. So John the apostle was there observing all these things happening. Okay, and of course the not breaking of bones fulfills Scripture in verse thirty-six. For these things were done that the Scripture may be, should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. That's from Psalm 34.20 and also from Psalm 22.17. That none of his bones shall be broken and that you can count all his bones. Okay? So we see that uh, in verse 31, this was on the preparation day. The preparation day is the day before the Sabbath. It's Friday. Now why is it called preparation day? Well, let's turn to Exodus for a second and we'll find out. Exodus 16. Go back to the original Sabbath here and see what reason why it was called the preparation day. Exodus chapter 16. And... uh, We'll start in verse 23. Actually, let's start in verse uh, 22. And so it was on the sixth day, that's the prepar- that's what we're talking about, the preparation day, Friday, and they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid up until morning, as Moses commanded, and did not, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it, which happened any other day. It took more than they needed for that day. Okay. Um, then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So the original Sabbath, uh, you know, they were being provided for miraculously by God in the wilderness. And God would not even allow food to show up on the seventh day, like there would be all the other six days. And on the sixth day, twice as much showed up, and they were to gather all that and prepare everything, cook it all on the sixth day, for the seventh day, kind of like a leftover day. You all had leftovers before. so kind of like having leftovers, okay? It's a day when, uh, you know, the people who are cooking can rest. So everyone is resting now. You know, so those who, who want to say you're supposed to keep the Sabbath, I wonder if they're cooking on that day. I, 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 I have a hard time believing that the people who are Sabbath keepers are doing no cooking on the Sabbath. This, I guess it's possible there are some who aren't. But this is why it's called Preparation Day. So they weren't supposed to do any work on, on the Sabbath. And that includes taking people down from the cross, burying them in a tomb, even putting oils and fragrances on them so they, their body wouldn't stink in the coming days. Okay, so... Uh, we see what the preparation day is. And so that was all done on Friday, which is the day before. Okay? And so we see in, uh, let's go back to Matthew 27 now. And it says in verse 59, When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. The question is, was Joseph there by himself. John answers that in John 19. It says uh, in John 19 and verse 39, And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, 
bring a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. So he's hauling a hundred pounds over there. And these guys, remember, they had to move quickly. They had three hours from when Jesus died to go to Pilate, get the body, get the body down from the cross, which isn't an easy thing to do. You gotta take, you take the nails out or somehow take the cross down. You gotta, you gotta prepare them properly, get the hundred pounds of mixture of mal, uh, myrrh and aloe there. And, you know, Nicodemus, I, I would suppose he's not a very young guy. I mean, when you're, when you are an elder in the Jewish community, it really meant usually you were old. You were elder. You weren't a young guy. Okay. So, uh, imagine someone who's in their 40s or 50s hauling 100 pounds of something somewhere. That'd be difficult, okay? Difficult. Even for a young guy, that'd be difficult. But you see, in Nicodemus, it, it reminds us once again that he, he came by night that one time. And see, this is I, I, it's kind of unusual about these two guys. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret disciple, for fear of the Jews, and Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night... Okay, which is kind of like secretly. Now they're out in the open, disciples of Jesus. They're not caring about the reputation. They're not caring about what's going to happen to them. And I'm sure lots of bad things happened to them after they did this. But there's disciples who were with them for three years. The only one who's even near the cross when these things are happening is John. All the rest of them fled. And so it's amazing how things can flip over pretty quickly. Verse 4, Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen, with the spices, as the custom of the Jews to bury. And in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. We just read that. Uh, so there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Okay, so the tomb was nearby. It was preparation day still, and they completed it all before the new day started. Now going back to Matthew 27, it says that he was in a new tomb. Now what's the significance of that? Now I can't, I, there's no prophecy I know of that this fulfills, but I think in some way it shows Joseph's respect for Jesus. Uh, I can imagine a new tomb would probably cost quite a bit of money. Uh, holding, honing it out of the rock, the rock face, making a hole there. That probably cost lots of money. Okay. And buying something that was nearby. It's kind of like uh, buying prime real estate. You know, buying something nearby a certain place. It would be difficult to do that. Uh, so I think that would have something to do with it. And... Um, you know, the fact that there'd be no confusion which body was Jesus's, and when they went there the next day and the body was gone, they couldn't say, well, oh no, that body over there is Jesus's, oh, that body over there is Jesus's. No, there was only one body in there, period. And when Jesus' body was gone, there were no bodies in there, we knew he was gone. He was risen from the dead. So that, that's the only thing that I could, I could figure out that would be significant about that. And then they rolled a large stone around uh, in front of the tomb, and the Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed, <clears throat> the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, remember while he was still alive how he how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. The ironic thing here, besides the fact that they think there may be some treatise in what Jesus is saying, is that they thought the disciples understood this. Did the disciples understand that? They didn't understand that Jesus was to rise from the dead in the third day. In the third day, and you see this later on, we'll see it even more. I mean, next week or the week after that. Um, but the Pharisees understood this. They had a lot of knowledge. A lot of understanding about what Jesus said, more than even the disciples did, because they understood that he was actually talking about him rising from the grave on the third day. Uh, which proves that they, when they misunderstood him about the temple being destroyed and built again in three days, they actually understood him, didn't they? And they were just trying to find some way of accusing him of something. And the other thing is, and I forgot to mention this before, but when, in John, when they're asking for the bodies to be to expedite the, the death of the criminals, the two criminals and the one supposed criminal, Jesus, they wanted them taken down because it was a high Sabbath. So here, here's the ironic thing. They want to expedite the death of the Lord of the Sabbath in order to keep the commandments from the Lord of the Sabbath about the Sabbath. Isn't that ironic? They want the Lord of the Sabbath to die quicker so they can keep the Sabbath 
and be you know clear, clear uh, free and clear of disobeying God on the Sabbath. It kind of reminds me of sometimes people will uh, you know say they they can't stop sinning and that the doctrine of biblical perfection is is heresy and that I'm going to go to hell if if I believe in that if I don't repent of that and where's the logical inconsistency there? Well. If I can't stop sinning, why can't this be the sin that I can't stop sinning? What's the problem with that? And they'll condemn me to hell for doing this one sin when I'm condemning them to hell for doing all their sins they do every single day. You know, I'm telling them they're on their way to hell for those things. And they'll be upset about this. So that, that's, you know, it just, it goes to show you that people who don't love God, they don't think properly. People who don't obey God, they don't think properly. They don't. They just don't think properly. And, uh, you see these things all the time as you deal with with sinners, deal with people who profess to be Christians who are living in sin every single day. You see these things time and time again. Okay, so and then in verse sixty six. We see in verse 65 that Pilate said, You have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Which, really, I mean, they think they're going to stop something here. I mean, they're trying to propose to Pilate they're going to stop the disciples, which I guess that might stop the disciples. But if Jesus is really going to rise from the dead, is a sealing of a stone and a securing of guard going to stop him? I mean, come on. And, and, and them doing that, really... Uh, did a lot of good things. One, it made Jesus' rising from the dead more miraculous because someone or something who was very powerful had to remove that stone. Two, um, it was a witness to those guards. Who knows what happened to those guards? See, God can even use the actions of wicked men to bring people to the truth. And maybe, maybe they, I mean, they obviously had the truth intellectually after they saw this, but maybe they came to a knowledge of truth after that. And it goes to show you that when these these soldiers fled this situation, if a soldier in real life fled a situation and had no good reason for it, he'd been put to death for fleeing his post, for abandoning his duty. He'd been put to death for it. And so for the fact that they fled for their lives tells you they had they were fearful of something besides being put to death. There was something more fearful that happened there. That there's some angel, this bright person, removed a... That's stone from his way, and we'll get to the, in the next, in the coming weeks about uh, you know what happened after this. Okay, well that's uh, that's it for this week. Do you have any uh, questions, objections, or things you want to add? Right, and, and the fact that Jesus said he would rise on the third day wouldn't make any sense. There was actually seventy-two hours because it wouldn't. Have, it would have been the fourth day, not the third day. It doesn't even have to be daylight because the day starts at night. Mm-hmm. So whenever he rose, he could have rose, and it could have still been dark outside. Right, so it was early in the morning. Yeah, early in the morning. But around that time of the year, the the sun does rise around uh, five a.m. I believe. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking into that recently. You know, for example, this past year in April 2012, you know, they add an hour on like we do. But if you take that hour off, the sun would have set at 6 o'clock on Passover this year. And the next day would have rose at 5 o'clock. And so that fits perfectly what we see with Jesus here. Um, that's good. Sure. Sean? Sure, question. I've heard it before, but I haven't really studied this enough to know. People always, I've heard this objection having to do with when Jesus died. Versus the, the synoptic version of John, I can't remember now. Am I just reading something wrong? Or? 
What, what's what's the verse in question? Uh, not, I don't know the verse. Something about like which day he died or which day he was crucified. I can't remember anymore. I'm just from the subjection report here and there. I'm not studying it well enough. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I haven't heard many objections from unbelievers about this. No, no. Most unbelievers don't go into depth enough about these things to even make an objection. But um, it says in, in verse 31 of John 19 that it was a preparation day when, when they died. That's what they'll read. And it's really not. It's really the day before, isn't it? No, it's Preparation Day, Friday. Preparation Day is Friday. Yeah, Preparation Day is Friday. So he would have died at the ninth hour on Friday, which would have been 3 p.m. And then we had three hours from 3 to 6 p.m. to bury him, which is what it says uh, in verse 42 of John 19. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jewish Preparation Day. The tomb was nearby. Maybe it had to do with the actual day, the wording of the word Passover. I can't remember now. Yeah, well, I mean, the, pa- the Passover itself can... Uh, <laughs> You know, there's, the Passover counts the Sabbath, but then there's another Sabbath. So Passover could have been on Thursday. He celebrated the Passover meal. There, it's a whole week long now, and so then it could have been a Friday preparation for the actual Sabbath on Saturday. You know, so that that's a possibility. But yeah, yeah. It means there'll be two Sabbaths in one week, is what it means. Together. One Sabbath besides the regular Sabbath. So, and like I said, it has to do with the feast. It goes along with the feast. So there's there's more than 52 Sabbaths in a year. I think there's actually uh, 56 or 57 Sabbaths in one year, I think. Something like that. <clears throat> but I don't see any reason to... To say, unless people are using the American line of thinking of 72 hours, I see no reason to say that Jesus died on any day besides Friday. No, there might have been something to do with, like, I can't remember, and I'll have to find it, because I haven't done that in a while. I've just heard it here and there in passing, having a study. It hasn't to do, do with when Jesus died, or before the Passover or after the Passover. Mm-hmm. Another example of inclusive reckoning is like, like Emma, for example. How old is she now? Well, they, they would say she's one years old, and at the, her one-year birthday, say she was two years old. And so that's an example of inclusive reckoning. They would never say someone is nine months or zero, you know, years old or three months old. They would say one years old, the moment you're born. No, they wouldn't say. You were maybe I misunderstood what you were saying at the end about the soldiers fleeing. Right. We didn't get into that this week, but uh, it talks about that in verses 11 through 14. Talks about it there. Matthew 28. And uh, the guards in verse 4, Matthew 28. Right. Uh, I'm sorry. I I did misunderstand you. Okay, so you weren't saying they, they ran away. No, that, that, that's what that's what it says. It says uh, his countenance was like lightning. Verse four: the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Okay, and then uh, we see in verse uh, eleven it says, "Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief all the things that had happened." So, are you saying that that didn't happen? No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm saying that if they became like dead men, how could they move? Oh well, I mean, I agree. Later on, they could become animated after it's all done and go into the city. Yeah. Well, when John Revelator says a team like a dead man, he fell on his face like a dead man. He's just I'm not animated. And to be like a dead man is to not be at animated, not just be fatal. Yeah, be be like completely frozen in fear. I'm not saying that later on they didn't go in. I'm not getting into the bargaining match. Sorry, but you're basically saying that they didn't see, they didn't flee at the sight of the angel. Right. They just stone cold froze, fell down. Whatever happened, they weren't able to do their their guardly duties to defend the the grave and not let anybody break the seal and that kind of thing. Yeah. Sorry. Next week. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't. There's no details about exactly when they ran away, but. 
I may be assuming some things there, running, reading some things into it, but that's just the way I always picture it, I guess. But I, I, I doubt they stayed there very long. Yeah. That they hung around to hang out with the, the ladies who were there and the angels and <laughs> who they were fearful. Normally, if you're fearful of something, you may, I mean, you may be frozen in your tracks for a second, kind of like a deer in headlights, but eventually you're gonna, you're gonna run away. You're gonna run away. Unless you get hit by the car first. Like a deer to us. It does. Matthew 28. Yeah, 11 through 14. 11 through 15, yeah. Yeah, it's hard not to, it's hard not to, I mean, I was tempted to go through all of Matthew today and finish it all up because it's just, it's all kind of just rolls together. It's difficult. I mean, I've, I've, I've basically already studied out the rest of it enough to be able to teach on it, but I just didn't want to go that far today. What are you going to say, brother? I was going to say, I don't know if this is just the difference between translations, but talking back on the, the new tune. You're talking about verse 60? Yeah, verse 60, it actually says in the King James, and, and laid it in his own new tomb. Mm-hmm. And I've heard people preach that many times, that this was a tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had already purchased for himself, but at the time of the crucifixion decided to just give it to Jesus. And that was just like a sacrificial thing that he did, uh, because it says his own, his own new tomb, that it actually belonged to him, possibly prior to that day. Uh, and as far as the uh, the stone and all that stuff, that, that, that was brought there that day, as it, as it says there in Scripture. But uh, I was wondering what you thought about that, as far as it being his own actually. Well, I mean, I, I was I think he owned it before then. Okay. What he owned it for before then, I have no idea. But he, he I mean, he didn't have it honed out of the rock that day. No. So, I mean, that takes time. So I, I don't know how, how long he owned it for. Uh, but, uh, I mean, that that would just add to the the strength of the prophecy. Right. He he owned it before that time. Right. You know, and uh that is her preset because it was his own mm-hmm. tomb that he had made for himself mm-hmm. and he had planned to be buried there himself. Right. But then whenever the crucifixion came he, he decided to, to give that over to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's why I put a priest on that one Yeah the fact that he had it honed out of the rock and that takes time, you see he had to have owned it before that day. Because he's the one who had that done, uh, but what he owned it for, I have no idea. I, mean, I would assume he probably owned it for himself. Right. Yeah, I would assume that, or at least for his family. Right. You know, because typically tombs back then didn't have just one person; they would have. I mean, it was a rich, a rich man's tomb, and he was a prominent council member, so that right. would go hand in hand that he would have a rich man's tomb for himself. That makes sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Does Jerusalem help? Don't they claim that they know where the tomb is? Yeah. Yeah. They do. It's on tour. Yeah, yeah. A lot of these traditional sites. So I mean, it's almost like the. Uh, I've been reading a, a biography of Martin Luther recently, and uh, it's almost like the relics of the Catholic Church. I mean, he he talks about how he would, when he was a a, a priest, he would he had the priest that was over him would show him these these relics and maybe relics in all these different places, and this would attract people, and and it's kind of like a, almost like I like it to entertainment today. That attracts people to church buildings. Well, come look at these relics. And if you, the closer you come to these relics, the better chance you'll have of having forgiveness of sins. You know, so a lot of these traditional sites. I mean, it's possible that, that there actually actually was where Jesus was, was buried, but it's obviously there somewhere. And there's not much land. I mean, it's not the land isn't that much there. It's got to be there somewhere. So it shouldn't be too hard to find. You know, you find a place where criminals were crucified, and you can figure that out. And then find a garden tomb right near that, uh, where there was only one body laid ever. Unless they demolished it. Yeah, unless they demolished it. I guess they could have been demolished. <coughs> That's true. All right, anybody else? Anything else? Based on that, I kind of, I, I kind of think that they actually knew it, they had knowledge of it, 
but they didn't actually believe that it was going to happen. But they just didn't believe that he would actually rise. Uh, so I think that's I mean, that's the way I've, I've kind of looked at it is is that they, they knew it because the Pharisees knew it to such a degree that they wanted to have guards put outside the tomb. You know, they 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 knew that that's what Jesus meant. And I would say that the, the disciples must have known it, but they probably just didn't believe it. Well, I mean, let's see, Mark 16, verse 11. Uh, this is when Mary Magdalene came back and told them. Then they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her. They did not believe. Verse 13. After the two disciples from Emmaus came, they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Uh, so you see those not believing there. And then in, uh, in Luke, uh, verse 24 and verse 11 when the woman came it says uh, gives more information about how they responded to it it says their words seemed to them to be like idle tales they did not believe them uh, and when Peter and John went to the tomb in verse 12 it says marveling to, Peter marveled to himself at what had happened so I, I don't see how they could possibly I mean obviously they heard you just talk about these things I agree with that but at the least, I, I mean, from these scriptures, I have to conclude that they didn't understand it, at the least. I don't think it was just a matter of, of simply disbelieving. I think it's a matter of they, you know, didn't understand it at the least. I mean, they considered it to be an idle tale. Even after someone who was a trusted person in their midst, it was a woman, but she was a trusted person. She had been with them. Uh, she came back and told them that he had risen from the dead. Surely by then they would have believed. And then two men came who walked Jesus from Emmaus and told them about all the things that he said to them. And they still didn't believe. So, you know, obviously there is a lack of belief there, but I think it's based upon it seeming like an idle tale. Like, this doesn't, you know, I don't think Jesus would do that. And uh, the fact that they were all heartbroken or what had happened, too, and him dying, means that at the least, I think they didn't understand it. So that's, that's the conclusion I've come to about this. Anybody else?